So yep. I stopped putting the fact that I had a disability in my job applications. And yep. as soon as I did that, I started to get interviews. So it was very clear that I was just being excluded on the basis of my disability uh, right from the start. Hi, I'm Paul Fink, and this is Stroke of Luck, the podcast about overcoming adversity and the challenge life throws at you. Today's guest is Graeme Innes. In 2014, at the age 34, my life was turned upside down by a large stroke. The stroke left me with a speech difficulty called aphasia, which means it can be hard to articulate all of my thoughts easily and understanding complex questions and information. That's why I decided to write this introduction and read it out word for word rather than speaking off the cuff. I'm always keen to face new challenges, like hosting this podcast, Stroke of Luck. I'm keen to learn from other people about how they have tackled or faced adversity in their lives and talk about how that has shaped and changed them. Graham Innes is a lawyer, company director, author, public speaker and was Australia's Disability Discriminator Commissioner. He is a former finalist for Australia of the Year and he has an Order of Australia in recognition of his work on human rights. Graham is 66 years old, married with two adult children and enjoys sailing and cricket. I am very fortunate to speak with him about his advocacy for people with disabilities and his own story of the challenges he faced, mainly his vision impairment after being born totally blind. Thank you, Graham. Thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell me where you were born and a bit of your about your childhood. Well, I was born in Sydney, in um, the inner west of Sydney, and, and grew up there. Uh, and spent, yeah, my, my first uh, 20 or 30 years in Sydney. And my childhood was pretty uh, standard. I was blessed, really, that my parents, uh, I was a middle child, and um, my parents took the view that my disability shouldn't have an impact on uh, uh, the way that uh, my life developed uh, as I grew up. So um, they treated me in the same way as they treated my older sister and younger brother. And what this meant was that I had a few more scrapes and scratches and uh, challenges as I as I grew up, but it gave me the confidence that I could um, do anything in my life that I wanted. And I think probably helped to develop uh, a bit of resilience. Uh, and uh, that's uh, an asset that I've been able to use throughout my life. That's it. Amazing. So, how many siblings you had? I've got an older sister and a younger brother. Okay. And um, I heard you raise money for the Royal Blind Society as a only three year old. Who guided you to be the type of person? I, I assume your parents. I assume. My parents always thought that um, it was important to give back to the community and um share you know we we weren't wealthy but we were well enough off and um my parents sort of i suppose christian ethic was that we should contribute uh to our community and so we worked we did a lot of work um 
as kids, and I've continued through my life um, to support um, uh, community and charitable causes. Uh, and that was all, all, always um, something that we did as a family. We used to participate in activities uh, as a family and that sort of thing. And so Royal Blind Society was one of the organisations which were providing me with support as a child. Uh, and so I and my family, I suppose, wanted to, to pay that back. Yeah, amazing. I hope you don't mind if you ask. I guess um, it, there was a point or time when you realised being blind, your experience was different to other kids? Oh, look, yes, there was. And, and um, I find that point uh, a little bit hard to mark, if you like, uh, to know exactly when it was. But there was uh, a point where I realised that I, I didn't have the, um, the freedom to run around in the same way as other kids and, and that I couldn't, I couldn't identify things that were out, outside my uh, range of uh, information through sound and touch. Um, and, and so I, I did, at some point, recognise that there was a difference. But it was never something that was emphasised for me. So um, it, it was just... That's the way it is, and I, I grew up learning that and dealing with it, I suppose. Yeah, and you, you feel your parents treated you um, the same with your other siblings? Yes, absolutely. I was expected to um, contribute uh, in the, in the, to the family activities, um, to do my share of uh, chores and, and that sort of thing, uh, and also I was given the opportunities to, to do things that my siblings did. And so... That's really how how I for, how my my thinking uh, around disability was was formed. Um, this is uh, uh, this sometimes can be a uh, an annoyance or a bit of a nuisance, but um, it's the cards you've been dealt, and you you um, you know you get on with your life. Yeah. So you see yourself as a person with a disability. Oh yes, yeah. so I see myself as a person with a disability. I mean. Uh, Absolutely, and uh, and in in lots of ways, um, I'm proud of that. I mean, I um, it's my area of difference or diversity. Um, as a person who is blind, I'm part of an awesome community, which um, is a very supportive community uh, who shares the same lived experience, uh, shares information amongst ourselves, uh, and uh, and we advocate for ourselves. Uh, so yes, I see myself as a person with a disability. Um, but but as I say, um, I grew up with the perspective that uh, uh, that's the cards you've been dealt, and so you you live your life. Yeah, learn to live with it, I guess. Um, yeah, learn that it's part of you, and and get on with your life, really. Yeah. What type of uh, technology did you use? Or I guess you're living your life, but also learning at school. I assume um, using Braille. What other things? Yes, I grew up reading Braille and uh, and writing in Braille, and that's the um, the form of script that I've used all my life. Um, so you know that that uh, uh, that's that's my form of communication. Um, when I was at school, I did that with a Braille typewriter uh, called a Perkins Braille machine. Um, these days, it's done with uh, computers with Braille keyboards and Braille um, Braille displays. But um, uh, it's the same reading and writing script that I've used all my life. Okay. Do you have a guide dog? I do now, although I didn't for about the first 40 years of my life. Uh, I used a white cane. So, um, 
my my travel, my mobility was, uh, um, you know, I've I've used um, the two systems that are broad broadly speaking, the two systems that are available to people who are blind or, or vision impaired, um, and you know, there, there's pros and cons uh, with those systems, uh, but um, yeah, I, I have a guide dog now, but I didn't for the first half of my life. And uh, what's the that relationship like? And your... you mean having a having a guide dog? Yeah, and your yeah dog. Um, well, for me, uh, a guide dog is a a very uh, efficient uh, way to travel, and and it's a a team relationship. But you know, it's not. Uh, that's where the that's the um, the impact of the uh, the dog's importance to me. Yeah. Um, it enables me to travel independently. Okay. What's your dog's name? I don't use her name in public because um, okay. uh, when I give her a command, uh, she responds to her name and I don't want other people interacting with her. And I've learned over the years that if I tell people her name, that's exactly what they'll do, despite the fact that I've asked them not to. Ah, oh, okay. Yeah, fair enough. Can you explain the difference between the technologies, say, 50 years ago and now for other uh, people? Well, um pretty much the difference um, between 50 years ago and now for general society uh, because 50 years ago we weren't in the computer age. Um, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have computers, we didn't have smartphones. Um, so now we do and that, that same difference um, has uh, been applied for me as a person who can't see as, um, as, as it has for a person who can see. So in that sense, um, I use the same technology that everyone else uses. The interfaces with that technology for me are different because much of the interface with technology uh, and uh, for people who can see is their vision. For me, it's my touch and my hearing, uh, but the technology is the same. So if you think about the time before computers and the time before uh, smartphones, then that was the time for me 50 years ago. Yeah, it's many, pretty amazing, the technology now. Oh, there's been a huge advance in technology, and that's meant a huge impact for a whole lot of people. It's meant that we communicate uh, differently. We don't send letters much now. We, we, um, we send emails. Uh, it's meant that we read differently. We read off screens rather than reading off paper. It's meant that we, we drive differently. You know, we no longer look up the street directory. We have a um, you know, sat-nav in our, in our car. It's most of our daily activities are done differently, and uh, that's the difference that technology's made. Yeah. What's the the transition from the school of deaf and blind children to the mainstream school? Challenging? Yes. A change for me to a new environment is always challenging. This was a a big environment change. Uh, it was a totally different school. I was going from a school with maybe fifty kids to a school with. Uh, 600, where the environment hadn't been specifically designed to um, suit someone who was blind or vision impaired, and where everyone else there but me could see. So it was a much more complex environment to get around, and we didn't have the um, access features that uh, we have in our, our public places and environments today. Uh, so yes, it was uh, challenging. Um, but, you know, to put it in context, any um, kid going from a small primary school to a large high school would experience a similar challenge. They mightn't experience the challenge of the environment, but mm. the rest of their experience would be the same in terms of um, dealing with a whole lot of new people, 
moving from class to class, which, uh, you know, one doesn't do so much in primary school, one tends to stay in the same room, uh, all of those things, those challenges were the same for everyone. For me, the, the challenge was the environment. Yeah, and you encountered any bullying or uh, I guess um, how to make friends? Look, I think every every child encounters a level of uh, of bullying and finds it hard to make um, friends in a new environment. Uh, there was no one from my previous school at my new school, so I didn't come with a group of friends. I found ways to um, uh, to make friends, uh, and um, but it was hard to do at first. Um, and yes, there were some people who um, tried to, as kids do who tried to take advantage of me as a result of my uh, disability. But um, I was able to, to deal with that. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a major problem. Yeah. How was the change from school and to the bigger environment of uni? Um, uni? Again, a new environment, a new process, uh, totally new friends. No one from my uh, high school studied law in the same year that I did. So um, I was starting all over again in terms of making those friendships. Um, that's hard for anyone and probably more of a challenge for me because um, my I was working without uh, being able to see the people that I was interacting with. But that's never been a big challenge for me because um, I make my judgments based on um, what I hear and what my other senses tell me um, and what people say more than what people uh, look like. Um, and in fact, I think that's probably a more reliable way to uh, assess people. So yes, it was uh, the same challenge that students experience. Uh, also, the, the the law course was just basically hard work. So um, yeah. I had to knuckle down and and do that. Um, yeah. But uh, but I don't know that it was again apart from the environmental challenges. I don't know that it was more of a challenge for me um, than it was for um, most other students. Yeah. Did you always want to be a lawyer? From my mid-teens, I decided that um, my life, in my life, I wanted to um, improve uh, the the society in which I lived. That that's how I wanted to approach my life, and came to the view that uh, knowing about and be, being able to work in law was a way to do that. And so, yes, from that point, I'd always wanted to be a lawyer. In that sense, I was one of the lucky kids. You know, I, I really feel for kids who come to the end of their school and are not sure uh, in which way they want to take their career. I was always pretty confident that that's what I wanted to do. That's good. And doing a law degree is challenging enough. How was it doing this blind? Uh, well, you know, I think the the impact for me was not being able to get access to the range of material that everyone else had. Um, I had books put into Braille and I had uh, hundreds or dozens of volunteers reading stuff onto tape. Uh, and in that in, at that point, it was reel-to-reel um, uh, -reel tapes and cassette tapes. Um, a lot of your listeners probably won't remember those, Paul, but... Yeah. Um, I do, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, so that was the challenge, just not having the, the breadth of access to information. And the way I decided that I would have to deal with that challenge was to know... The, the material that I did have as well as I possibly could. And so um, for me, the law, law degree was hard work. Uh, I spent a lot of time studying. Um, sure, I had a, a social life, but it wasn't perhaps the, uh, the level of social life that uh, others at uni might have because I was, I was um, not a, a brilliant student. Uh, I was one of the stu those students who had to work hard to, to get to where I wanted to go. 
And so uh, I spent a lot of my time in, over that four years uh, doing that um, and, uh, and completed the degree. Yeah. And it was uh, um, difficult to find a job after graduating? That's where I really met the first challenge uh, that, that I, I had to spend a lot of time working at as a person with a disability. Uh, and that was this, uh, and, and that, I suppose, brings me to my, my broad view of disability, that the biggest barrier that we face as people with disabilities is the attitude barrier. You know, people make assumptions about us and what we will be able to do based on their limited knowledge of disability. And those assumptions are usually negative and they're usually wrong. Uh, and so what we experience uh, as a group in the population is what I describe as the soft bigotry of low expectations. So I went to, in the first year out from uni, I, I started to apply for jobs and I put the fact um, that I had a disability on my job applications and I just didn't get interviews. Um, and so I thought, oh, okay, I, I need to change something here. There's a problem because this was in the time where there were reasonably good availability of jobs for lawyers. So yeah. I stopped putting um, the fact that I had a disability in my job applications. And yeah. as soon as I did that, I started to get interviews. So it was very clear that I was just being excluded on the basis of my disability uh, right from the start. Mm. Um, so the first time people would find out about my disability is when I walked in the door of the interview room with my white cane. And at interviews, I used to say to everyone who interviewed me at the end of the interview, now, um, you know, I know that you probably haven't ever met another person who's blind working as a lawyer. So I want to talk to you about uh, the fact that I know I can do this job. And these are the things that I will do differently in order to achieve carrying out the job. So I initiated the conversation about my disability because um, most people, again, uh, didn't want to initiate that conversation, didn't want to have that conversation. They made their decisions based on their assumptions, which, again, as I say, were wrong. So I did that and I went for about 30 interviews in that first year and I didn't get any of those jobs. Now, I, I know uh, for certain that the vast majority of those jobs that I didn't get had nothing to do with the um, strength of my law degree. It wasn't a brilliant law degree, but it was an okay degree. Mm. They were all about not understanding how a blind person could work as a lawyer. Yeah. And um, so I had that experience for a year and it really was the biggest challenge I'd faced in my life at that stage. And I realized that I had to find another way to resolve this problem. So I sat the um, New South Wales Public Service uh, examination and started in the public service as a clerical assistant, the, the, the bottom level of the public service, um, because I realized that what I had to do was um, prove myself at every level. So start at the bottom and work my way up. Even though I had a law degree, Yep. Uh, and no other qualified lawyers would have to do that. That's what I would have to do. And it's all about negative attitudes in the community. And in fact, my first job, Paul, was, um, or part of my first job, was answering the telephone and telling people the winning lotto numbers. And of course, you really need a law degree to, to do that. <laughs> uh, so, um, so I started as a clerical assistant, worked my way up, um, proved myself there, became a clerk, um, became a legal a clerk in the legal section, um, proved myself in all those roles and finally convinced the head of uh, the legal section at the Department of Consumer Affairs that I could work as a legal officer. Um, and that's the pathway that most people with disabilities have to take. Yeah, I guess um, possibly you answered already, but uh, the question is, um, 
What's the major roadblocks for blind people? I guess the connotations. The major roadblocks for for people with disabilities generally are attitudes of other people in the community. And if we could remove that attitude barrier, most of the other issues around disability would fall away. Um, But as I've said earlier, we are limited by the soft bigotry of low expectations. And that's why since I left the Human Rights Commission, I've put a lot of my time into the work of an organisation called the Attitude Foundation. Um, And our role at the Attitude Foundation is to uh, change community attitudes uh, about people with disabilities because until we remove this attitude barrier, we're never going to change the... There's a 30% differential in uh, job success for people with disabilities. So we are employed at a rate 30% lower than the general population. Um, And and even when we are employed, we're generally underemployed. And that's all about people making assumptions that we won't be able to be successful in our jobs, even though we've proved that we can be, uh, even though all the research says that we take less sick leave, uh, we stay in jobs longer than other people, uh, we make fewer compensation claims, and we're better managers. The research shows all of those four things, but still, um, we, we are stopped by negative attitudes towards us. Yeah, by today's standards, do you think there's a bit a change attitudes toward with um, disability in the workforce? No, for not example? much. Um, for thirty years, that figure of thirty percent has been the case. Uh, so we haven't managed to change that employment um, figure one one bit in the last thirty years. Um, so we have to find new ways to uh, to do it, and that's again as I said, why I'm involved with the Attitude Foundation, because um, we are trying to get people with disabilities onto television and smartphone screens, um, not as heroes, not as victims, but just as people living our lives and contributing to the community, because we need to change the attitude that that's not what people with disabilities can do. Yeah, and before that, you were the Australia's disability, I'll say, try to say it, Remuneration Commissioner. Very hard I was. To say. <laughs> yeah, yeah I was. And uh, I was, um, rights and race can never also. Yes, that's right. Um, I was rights commissioner for almost 10 years. Yep. And um, uh, that, that provided me with a great opportunity to try and um, progress uh, a range of human rights issues. Um, with a particular focus on people with disabilities. Yeah. How do you got involved this space initially? Well, uh, you know, I was a lawyer. I'd been a disability advocate um, since university, really. Um, and the area of law that I practiced was uh, human rights and discrimination. Um, so I was uniquely qualified for the role. And uh, I suppose the um, uh, Attorney General... Federal Attorney General um, became aware of me uh, through the work that I had done as an advocate. Um, I chaired the Australian Disability Advisory Council for um, uh, four or five years, and um, uh, I'd been involved in other advocacy activity, uh, and um, I'd worked at two state and and the federal uh, human rights commission in uh, in other roles and decided to ask me to take up the, the job of um, uh, Disability Discrimination Commissioner and the other commissioner roles that uh, you mentioned that I had. Yeah. What's your proudest moment in your political career? 
Uh, well, I'm not sure that I've had a political career um, uh, in in the strict sense. I mean, I haven't okay. been in politics, but yep. um, my proudest moment uh, in my work life um, is um, the passage of the Australia's disability discrimination legislation, which I uh, was in 1992, while I was chair of the Disability Advisory Council. Um, and I'm, pr I'm proudest of that because it's a huge game changer for um, people with disabilities. I mean, it's a piece of legislation that's almost 30 years old now, so it needs um, refreshment and updating. And with that 28 years of experience, I can see, um, 29, I can see where those changes uh, should be. But it's still uh, a piece of legislation which uh, has made huge change for people with disabilities, not in the area of employment, um, but certainly in the area of public transport and access to buildings. There's changes um, which have uh, which have cost billions of dollars in Australia, um, which have improved the access to that infrastructure for people with disabilities. Um, so I'm very proud to have uh, facilitate helped facilitate that change by being involved with the creation of that legislation. Are you passionate about human rights and disabilities because of your the hardship in your life? Uh, I'm passionate about. Um, discrimination generally, not just against people with disabilities, but particularly against people with disabilities. Um, and I'm passionate about, uh, passionate about us not being limited by our diversity. Um, but I'm passionate about a whole lot of groups in the community not being limited by our diversity. And I think that comes initially from the upbringing uh, with my parents, where I was always taught that um, everyone uh, was equal and, and everyone was entitled to a the same opportunity. So when I see unfairness or discrimination occurring in the community, whether it's to um, people from non-English speaking backgrounds or people who are um, same sex attracted or people who have sought asylum in our country or people with disabilities, um, I'm prepared to challenge it because I think what we're doing by um, limiting the opportunities of those groups is actually uh, lessening the um, effectiveness of our society. So we're doing ourselves harm by that discrimination. So uh, I'm always ready to challenge that. Yeah, I noticed that um, TV shows, ads and, and advertising agencies more comfortable using people with disabilities like Daniel Olcott with the ANZ ads or Kurt Fanley with the featuring at Play School, etc. Do you reckon people are more accepting of disabilities now? Um, not much more. Uh, you know, there are people like Dylan and Kurt now more involved, and that's fantastic. Uh, that's the, that's the, uh, the first green shoots that we've had um, in this process. But people with disabilities make up 21% of our population. So there ought to be, you know, one in five people featured in all advertising ought to be people with disabilities if there was uh, fair representation. One in five people um, in movies uh, and in um, uh, you know, TV generally ought to be people with disabilities. I'll be satisfied when we get to that point. So yes, I can see little shoots of uh, uh, green shoots of progress, but really we've got a long, long way to go. Mm. And even um, when we see people like Dylan and Kurt uh, involved in that way, the attitude of most people in society is um, 
Um, isn't that uh, amazing? Isn't that marvellous? So they are made out as, and it's, I'm, I'm not suggesting it's their intention because I know them both and I know it definitely it's not, but they're made out by the community as heroes. They're not heroes. They're just ordinary guys getting on with their lives. Uh, and, um, and, and so what we need to do is um, remove that, what still a young, uh, famous comedian, Australian comedian called inspiration porn. We need to remove that inspiration porn um, from, our, uh, from our general conversation. Yeah. After my stroke, always interested in brain function and neuroplasticity, people often think that when one sense of not used, that other senses become stronger. For example, blind people become able to hear better or have stronger sense of touch, smell and hearing. What's your experience with that? Well, uh, I don't think the science supports the fact that uh, other senses become stronger. I think what the science supports, uh, and this is my experience as well, is that people who, are, who don't have one particular sense make better use of the senses that they've got. So I don't think I can hear better than anyone else. But what I do do better than a lot of people is use what I hear. Um, we really don't pay that much attention uh, to what we hear and smell uh, and touch because our primary sense of information comes uh, in most cases through our eyes. That's not the case for me. So I've, um, I've put those other senses to far better uh, use. In terms of brain plasticity, you probably know more about it than me, but um, I think the science is very clear that, that if there is a section of your brain that is um, underutilized, our brains do um, start to use that uh, section for other activities. Um, and uh, I believe that I've been able to develop uh, good memory capacity, uh, better than average memory capacity, um, because my, my brain is not um, busy with the function of, uh, a function of vision. Um, and that's been a big assistance to me in my life, um, developing uh, good memory. And, uh, and I'm also um, a quite organized person. Uh, and I have routines and patterns that I follow pretty strictly um, to limit the impact of my disability in terms of not being able to find things. So my, um, my desk, my briefcase, my um, other, other areas of my life are uh, well organized with things always going back um, in the same place um, as, they, uh, as they were. And that's, that has definitely uh, facilitated uh, me in achieving you know, what, I, what I want to. Yeah, I guess this question is similar to your, you mentioned your work at the Attitude Foundation. Mm. Um, lots of people have a, a stroke left with a disability and sometimes the disability is hidden. For example, fatigue, aphasia, I have aphasia, memory loss. What's the best way to change the perception of people who have hidden disabilities? Well, I think it's exactly the same as, as those for people with visible disabilities. That is to change the community's attitude towards disability and to convince the community um, by showing uh, our participation um, in uh, all activities of society that, um, that we are able to make a positive contribution to the community. Um, because I think when we, when we can get away from those limiting and negative attitudes, then we won't make assumptions about people 
um, based on their disability will make uh, assumptions about people based on what they've demonstrated they can achieve. And um, in that way, we'll have a far fairer society in the same way as if we don't make assumptions about people based on their race um, or on their same-sex attraction. Mm. Um, because that's just part of human condition and it's just part of people. It's not all people. So um, if we if we stop um, assuming uh, about people with disabilities and reducing the opportunities we give people with disabilities to participate in the community, we will, as a community, be very surprised at the level of participation uh, that we get from people with disabilities. Yeah. You, you were an advocate for the cinema captioning and audio description in Australia. Yes. And it's not the question as much, but sort of a compliment to you because I guess my, my disability, I struggle to under, understand things and sometimes, and I preferred written information versus verbal yep. information. Yep. So um, I'll say thank you, Grant, because um, this so handy. I love watching um, movies with English subtitles because I struggle, can't keep up with the dialogue. Mm. Um, well, most things that benefit, that are access benefits for people with disabilities, benefit the broader community. I mean, the telephone was invented first invented as a uh, communications device for people with disabilities uh, before it gained its, its broader use. Um, captions, you, you've clearly explained the benefits of captions, not just to people who are deaf, but to people such as yourself, uh, to people in noisy environments like airports or um, other noisy environments, captions are such a benefit. Um, you know, uh, ramps on crosswalks are a huge mm. benefit to parents with prams, to uh, couriers uh, with trolleys, um, and to people wheeling luggage, as well as to people who use mobility aids. Um, audible traffic signals now. If you if you watch a group of people um, standing at a, uh, at a set of traffic lights, they'll all be looking down at their phones or uh, doing something else like that. And it's the audible signal that first prompts people that it's that they're okay to cross the road. And then they look up and cross the road. So most accessibility benefits uh, benefit a broader range of the community. And the, uh, the only um, reason that the community doesn't recognise that as much is b- because of the same limiting and negative attitudes towards disability um, that I talk about in the community. Uh, we, we, we benefit from these sorts of activities um, as, a, as a broader community. Yep, I'm changed the topic. I sure. am a cricket fan also. Oh, uh, yes. Well, I'm a cricket tragic, really. <laughs> Me too. So how do you, do you get you into cricket without being able to see the matches? Oh, well, you don't have to see cricket to uh, to follow it. Cricket's a really complex uh, sport. And if you follow it um, with any for any length of time or with any seriousness, um, it's the, the key thing about it is the tactics in the game. And uh, cricket's played uh, very much above the shoulders. Um, uh, it's a very much a thinking game. And, um, uh, and so, sure, you're, uh, the way of following cricket is different if you can't see the game. Um, you use uh, different um, uh, senses to appreciate the game. Um, but not being able to see it is not, a, is not a reason to not enjoy it. 
Yeah, I totally agree. In in fact, my um my passion is um listening on the radio and falling asleep on the radio. It's so <laughs> soothing and I love it. Yeah, well, lots and lots of people, of course, turn down the sound on the television, uh, watch the screen uh, yep. and have the radio on um, because the commentary makes the game uh, clearer and easier to follow uh, and the information that you gain from the radio commentary is... Um, is much more uh, detailed. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, again, there's there's a broader community benefit. Yep. Um, blind cricket has a rich heritage, especially in Australia. Have you tried it? Oh yes, I played it. I played for New South Wales for many years, and I um, uh, I, I was in the first uh, Australian touring team that went overseas. So, blind cricket was actually developed in Australia. Um, it was developed initially in Melbourne. Uh, and and then expanded to other parts of Australia. Uh, so yes, absolutely. I've I've played uh, played the game for or probably through my te- all through my teenage years uh, and all through my twenties and, and early thirties. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And you and you also love sailing. What's, I um, do. What challenge to face sailing when you're blind? I mean. I love sailing because it's a, an activity uh, in which I can participate um, where uh, the noise of uh, motors and stuff like that is eliminated. And uh, I've also loved the water and I love being out on the water. Um, it's the same reason that I've just actually bought a, uh, a tinny uh, where I now live, uh, uh, a, uh, an aluminium uh, boat with an electric motor rather than an outboard because I hate the sound of... Um, uh, of the outboard motor, uh, but um, I don't. I think sailing for me is a good sport because you um, you only have to move around a fixed environment. That is the boat, and the aim is to stay on the boat. So um, uh, in that sense, it provides uh, far fewer challenges than uh, than other sports, which require uh, greater um, movement uh, in a bigger environment. Um, I mean, I I um, obviously. Uh, sail with other people uh, because uh, not because I can't sail the boat by myself but because uh, there's a whole lot of things like land and other boats uh, that you can run into if you can't see them Uh, now there have been people who have dealt with that challenge uh, and in fact there's been uh, blind people who've sailed uh, yachts um, solo around the world Uh, but um, I've I'm not minded to do that because I actually enjoy the companionship of the people with whom I sail. Um, so, you know, my jobs on uh, a boat are the, are the ones that I can do effectively without needing to see those objects that you run into. As long as there's someone else on the boat who can do that, then, you know, uh, we're okay. Yeah, amazing. Thank you very much, Graham. I pre- appreciate it a lot. It's a pleasure to talk with you. I think I've managed to work my views and my approaches into the uh, into our conversation. So hopefully that's given you enough um, material for your podcast. That was an insightful and thought-provoking conversation. Graham was determined, even as a teenager, to be a lawyer and improve society. It sounds like part of his ambition came from his parents, who set up his long life perspective that there were never any limits to what he could achieve. He encouraged us all to focus on what people with disabilities can do, not what they can't do. 
Rhyme, I hope that your work continues to make a difference. Hopefully you can understand my speech in the interview, despite my ongoing aphasia. And thank you for listening in. If you like that podcast, follow the show for free. And to stay up to date with me, follow my blog at iampoorfink.com.au. Shout out to the Stroke Foundation for helping to fund this project. Visit their website for more information about Sign of Stroke. Thanks again to my friends Corey Layton, David Rood and Andrew Weiss for your ongoing support and make this podcast possible. Thanks also to Nick Morachu from My Sport Live for the work on editing and thanks for the roles for the very cool artwork. Last but not least, thank you to my speed therapists, Gemma Duffield for coming up with the podcast idea initially, Claire Douglas and Lauren Fletcher for helping with brainstorming and writing. That's it for this episode. Keep positive, keep happy, and all the best. Cheers.